Hello, I'm Rishi Singh, and welcome to this new Retina Radio mini-series, Clinical Impacts from the American Academy of Ophthalmology Meeting 2020. This is part one of two. Episode two is forthcoming in a few days. And in this mini-series, we're going to discuss how data presented at the American Academy of Ophthalmology Meeting may affect clinical decision-making. Joining me today are Drs. Diana Doe and Dr. Jeff Heyer. Hi, Rishi. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Hi, Rishi and Diana. Yep, always a pleasure to have discussions with you. So let's start off with Dr. Doe's presentation. Uh, Diana, you gave a presentation on how do anti-VEGF stack up, uh, comparing the efficacy of intravitreal agents, and give us a macro-level view of your study design. Rishi, my colleagues and I thought this was an important study to undertake because at present, retina specialists utilize ranibizumab, aflibercept, brolicizumab, and off-label bevacizumab for the treatment of wet age-related macular degeneration. And these agents are commonly administered at either fixed intervals, according to as-needed dosing, or treat and extend protocols. We performed a network meta-analysis to look at the relative efficacy of ranibizumab given on an as-needed or fixed dosing interval and evaluated it compared to other regimens in wet AMD. We included 21 clinical randomized trials in our study and looked at mean change in visual acuity at 12 months and 24 months, and also looked at the proportion of patients who gained 15 or more letters at 12 months. And we wanted to see if there was a difference between these different dosing regimens. So Diana, when you were selecting these trials, talk about that inclusion and exclusion a little bit more for me. So were these all just prospective registration trials? Were they uh, studies like the CAT trial, which wasn't a registration study, but was obviously done to compare agents? How did you select them? Yes, we looked at clinical trials that were randomized and that had enough data that we could compare across these different regimens. And so when we looked at all of their primary endpoints, we saw that there were commonalities between many of these clinical trials and the outcomes that we could look at were mean change in visual acuity from baseline to months 12 and months 24. And then we could also look at the outcome of 15 or more letters gained at month 12 between these randomized clinical trials. That's great. Now, what did you see in your results uh, with the best corrective acuity changes at 12 months and then again at 24 months? I think our results were interesting and a little bit surprising. We saw that at 12 months, we did not see any significant differences in visual acuity change from baseline that would favor a particular anti-VEGF agent or regimen. So it gave us some level of comfort to say that if a clinician followed either fixed dosing, as-needed dosing, or treat and extend according to these clinical trials, the visual outcomes were actually quite comparable. At 24 months, we also did not see any clinically meaningful difference between these different dosing regimens. So as a clinician, um, I think, it gives me more confidence. I favor treat and extend as my uh, regimen of choice. 
And I feel that if I'm adequately treating my patients and following them closely, I think I can help preserve their vision and maintain their visual acuity gains. Diana, mean change in vision gain is important, but as you know, a lot of times we look at the percentage of patients that gain three lines of vision, what we consider a significant visual gain. How, what did you find with respect to three-line gainers? I agree with you. 15 or more letter gains is very significant. And when we looked at this outcome at month 12, there was a small difference. In fact, relative to as-needed ranibizumab, the odds of gaining 15 or more letters at month 12 were 1.3 to 1.4 fold higher with monthly bevacizumab or monthly ranibizumab uh, or ranibizumab given on a treat and extend protocol. However, when we looked at these results more closely, these results should be interpreted with caution because the 95% credible intervals were wide and close to crossing one which would indicate no difference. So clinically, it reminds me that we know that we don't wanna undertreat patients and we know that more VEGF suppression is good. So the key message is we want to treat our patients if they're active often to really maximize the VEGF inhibition and to really optimize the visual acuity outcomes. Got it. Great. We're going to hear from Dr. Jeff Heyer, whose talk was titled Assessing Characteristics in Patients with or Without Intraocular Inflammation in the Brolicizumab Treatment Arms from the Hawk and Harrier Trials. As you're aware, the Hawk and Harrier studies were the phase three registration trials for this drug. Jeff, tell us about the study design. Sure. So as you know, brolicizumab was approved last year. And following its approval, there were a number of post-marketing reports of significant intraocular inflammation, retinal vasculitis, and occlusive retinal vasculitis. Novartis established a safety review committee, of which I was part of, that looked first at the post-marketing cases and then at Hawk and Harrier to better determine an incidence of these cases and better understand it. Following that, once it was clear that there was a new safety signal of retinal vasculitis and retinal occlusive disease, Novartis established a think tank, which was a collaboration of Novartis uh, experts, global experts in terms of clinical trials, uveitis, imaging, and immunology. And they assembled multiple times to look at root causes of the disease, patient characteristics, uh, mitigating factors and treatments of these patients. What we presented was some of the initial work looking at the findings of the think tank. That's great. So what, what did the team rule out uh, from those cases? Were all cases included or were there certain cases that were not included as part of this analysis? So, so initially, what they looked at was cases that were clearly uh, felt to be drug-related, and that was really work that was in line with the safety review committee. Having done that, there were certain hypotheses and certain factors that were considered, and these were things like the manufacturing process, and that was ruled out. 
uh, baseline anti-drug antibodies was studied and baseline anti-drug antibodies were ruled out. They also looked at certain patient characteristics and early on gender was felt to be uh, important in terms of the uh, occurrence of these events. But with more analysis and with multivariate analysis, gender was found to be um, less important in terms of the cause of these events. So Jeff, from your data, what factors were actually found to be associated with this adverse outcome? So anti-drug antibodies were very interesting. You remember I said that baseline anti-drug antibodies were not found to be significant, but the presence of boosted or emergent anti-drug antibodies were found to have an association with vasculitis or occlusive events. Roughly 60% of patients with either vasculitis or occlusions did have either boosted or induced antibody response prior to or proximal to the event. Jeff, I always find this very fascinating about the antibodies. What's the difference between the anti-drug antibody and a neutralizing antibody? And how does that play a role in this inflammation? So it's a great question, Diana. Neutralizing antibodies are actually a specific type of antibody or anti-drug antibody, which blocks the ability of the drug to bind to a particular agent or factor. So neutralizing antibodies would block the ability of brolizizumab to bind to VEGF. And it, it's interesting that neutralizing antibodies may even be more important than just the group of anti-drug antibodies as a whole. It, what we found was that 29% of patients who had an, a vasculitis or occlusive event had neutralizing antibodies positive at baseline. Another 57% converted at some time again after treatment was initiated with brolizizumab. So combined, you're looking at roughly 86% of patients who had potentially an association with neutralizing antibodies. That's great. That's a lot of compelling data from both of your studies. So thank you for presenting that. And when we come back, we're going to review how this new information may affect clinical decision-making. Welcome back to the Clinical Impacts from the AO meeting. I'm Rishi Singh here with Diana Doe and Jeff Heyer. And we just heard some data from Dr. Doe that compared all of the anti-VEGF agents for wet AMD to each other via network meta-analysis. And we heard from Dr. Jeff Heyer regarding the intraocular inflammation data from the Hawk and Harrier trials. So this is my first question. How do these, how do these data sets change or do they change clinical decision-making in your practices right now? Uh, let's start off with Diana. Thanks, Rishi. I think in my clinical practice, what my network analysis reminded me was that we really have to follow patients with wet AMD closely. And if we want the best visual acuity outcomes, we really have to engage patients to come back frequently for their treatments, whether we choose treat and extend, fixed dosing, or as needed dosing. Many of the best visual acuity outcomes are achieved when we follow strict protocols. And that's challenging in the real world. So as a clinician, I want to avoid under-treatment 
and I want to maximize our patients' uh, visual acuity gains. So I really need to engage them to come back frequently. Diana, if we're grappling with the idea of switching to one of the branded drugs, um, and we're dealing with both the patient paying for the drug, but also the insurance company sort of denying the initial drug application for us to use it, what do you think we should provide them with information with regards to making a case for needing these drugs? Because clearly your data is, is supportive of, of all drugs, but I wonder if you could help uh, the person listening to this home understand better how they can negotiate that with their companies. I think it's important to recommend that there are small differences between intravitreal anti-VEGF agents. Although all of them can lead to good visual acuity outcomes, there are differences in durability. In the real world, we know that patients have challenges to coming back to office visits frequently. And we've seen through clinical trials, for instance, that a flubercept can be given every two months and result in excellent visual acuity outcomes. That saves patients from coming back every month. So it is imperative that physicians still have the opportunity to choose FDA approved agents because for many patients, the durability factor will be important in their maintaining vision and independence. That's fabulous. So let's ask the same question of Dr. Heyer. And uh, again, you presented the intraocular inflammation events in Hawk and Harrier. So how do this, does this data change or do they change any of your clinical decision-making around the use of BioView? Um, Jeff, could you answer that for us? Sure. So as with many of us, uh, when rolizumab was first approved, I had a number of hard to treat patients, patients who had persistent fluid despite say um, monthly aflibercept or monthly ranibizumab. And I treated about a dozen of those patients with brolizumab. Of those 10 had really fairly dramatic anatomic improvements. And I was very encouraged by that. But around the same time, these inflammatory events started to surface. And, and as I became more involved in the analysis, I actually switched all but one of these initial patients over. Um, and I've not been putting patients on this new un, unless there's a fairly significant reason to do that. And that would be a patient losing vision despite um, really every other effort with the current drugs. I'm anxiously awaiting further analysis from from the ongoing studies. I have not pulled any of my patients from the ongoing studies, although I've had very detailed discussions with them about the risk, but those patients are all nine to 12 months into the studies already. And we know that the risk at that stage of developing uh, significant inflammation is much, much less. So I'm waiting to see if these uh, results dealing with the anti-drug antibodies and the neutralizing antibodies can be validated in the ongoing brolizumab studies, of which there are a number of ongoing studies. You know, I, Jeff, I, from my own personal standpoint, I, I think your analysis was great because it helps me better potentially identify those who might be at risk. And it also just reminds me, I think, because 
clinicians go, we've become uh, maybe a little bit lax with doing the examination of the retinal periphery, for example, in every patient. So any patient who's on BOVU for me now, and I still use BOVU, I thankfully, knock on wood, have not had a event uh, as has been described. But uh, I do evaluate the retinal periphery to make sure that there's no sign of retinal vasculitis or inflammation as part of that. I think it came a lot from your talk and the data you presented with regards to the information with who is most at risk for this condition. Rishi, I agree with you entirely. Certainly if there are patients who are on brolizumab and the study patients, they get very careful slit lamp examinations to make sure there's no inflammation. And that's, you know, maybe we'd all become lax as you noted, and we weren't doing as careful exams. So I look at that carefully. I also look at the OCTs and in the safety review committee work for Hawken Harrier, there were cases where we saw evidence of vitreous cells prior to an event happening, even though inflammation hadn't been reported. I would also look carefully for a history of intraocular inflammation before treating with brolicizumab or history of an occlusive event. Rishi, how often do you perform wide field fluorescein angiography in patients who are currently um, undergoing treatment with brolicizumab? You know, Diana, it's not something I do often, but then again, with the problem with wide field angiography, as you know, and, and I, I've also known over the past couple of years is that there's almost artifactual changes that we can look at sometimes and be thinking that they're vasculitic changes in a totally normal eye. And that can be just slight motion artifact, or it can be just, you know, sort of a lens related activity that uh, distorts the peripheral view. I mean, the Optos camera, while it is a boon for retinovascular disease, I'm not sure it's the best for the normative patients, which I find like a lot of little abnormalities and ditzels I don't know what to make of. I, I wonder, have you had much experience with doing these in your patients? It's true that with the wide field, you get so much more information and some of it, um, you're wondering, you know, is it true leakage in the far periphery? I think, you know, certainly if we're using brolicizumab, we're looking for the clinical signs of cell and flare. If you develop those signs, then it would prompt me to get a fluorescein angiogram. But I think in the absence of cell and flare, um, perhaps I would not need to get the wide field angiogram. Actually, Rishi, if I could ask Diana a question um, related to her talk. Diana, you mentioned, um, or you talk about how the PRN regimens in the studies that you looked at really had fairly excellent outcomes comparable to, to some of the monthly or regular therapy. And yet we know from real world data, PRN regimens are uniformly bad. So how do you equate the findings from your study with real world? It was surprising that in our network meta-analysis, the as-needed group did have such good visual acuity gains. And I think we have to look at these clinical trials and remember that as-needed treatment actually involved coming back every month and having rigorous analysis of both the OCT, the visual acuity, and the clinical examination. Of course, that's hard to duplicate in real world practice. And I think that's why as needed treatment in the real world is not as effective. 
So we spent a lot of time talking about what we think our theoretical clinicians who are listening to this program might do, but what about the two of you? Would you adjust anything based uh, on the talks that you gave on your own clinical decision-making? If so, what? And let's start off with Diana. In my clinical practice for wet AMD, I prefer a treat and extend regimen if possible. And the network meta-analysis reminds me that I don't want to overextend patients because I don't want to miss treating patients if there's any recurrence of their choroidal neovascularization. Because ultimately we know that preserving and maintaining visual acuity gains is best achieved with sufficient VEGF inhibition. So I, I remind myself not to overextend and not to undertreat patients. Sounds good. Let's hear from Dr. Heyer. Yeah, so I fully agree with Diana. I think the meta-analysis clearly shows us that if patients are followed carefully and treated regularly, that's where we get our best outcomes. And when we deviate from that, as often happens in the real world, we start losing those potential gains. In, in terms of brolicizumab, um, I'm anxiously awaiting the work that's continuing with the Novartis think tank to help us identify the, the factors that may really allow us to, to minimize that risk of one in 200 of severe vision loss with these events down into the, the risk of the one in 1,000 or one in 2,000 that uh, makes it easier for us to use because I think many of us have seen that the anatomic benefits are clearly there and we just need to sit the safety to match those potential benefits. Well, those are some really great points. And that's a wrap for us on this episode in the mini series, Clinical Impacts from the AO Meeting. Remember to keep your eye out for part two, which will be in your feeds in the near future. 